Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact, but so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day brings us all together. Marvel. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Hey, Sean, here we are. Uh, another episode of the Few Podcast. And our first return guest, it's big news. Big news. We've caught people on their first book. Now we've caught our next guest on his, oh man, second or third book. Oh, this is the third. Yeah, third. I thought it was third. I was thinking second and then third, but I was thinking, well, you know, eventually we'll probably get to that detail. It's been busy for everyone. It's been crazy. Top Gun 2 came out. So, Busy start of the year, uh, being able to travel again and move around, and uh, I think I've done 19 flights in the last three months now, and it's good to be able to get around to different states and go and see people and speak in front of uh, audiences again. It's uh, very refreshing after the last couple of years. Yeah, but Top Gun 2 came out, mate. I mean, that's all great, but, you know, Maverick's back. Wasn't it exceptional? It was so good. I really liked the way the love interest had the same house and the same car, but it was a different chick. Yeah, there was some kind of weird connections to the past. I think it's almost like did she top? Was she was she killed? You know, it was Penny Benjamin, right? That's who it was. Who did the fly pass by in the first movie? Right, One the Admiral's daughter. So you can watch that movie ten times, and there's still something to learn. But yet she had Charlie's house and Charlie's car. I know, crazy. Huh? Okay, Penny, Penny topped Charlie. Uh, anyway, thanks, mate. You meant to talk after we introduce you, so I'll hand over Sean. He can he can do the intro. So yes, we want to uh, welcome back to the show, Luke Mathers. It's great to have you back, mate. Um, I know that uh, last time we talked about stress, Teflon, your previous book, and the, the the concepts behind how to allow stress to just effectively slip off us and not carry it around and and those sorts of things. But uh, we are very curious about the new book and about what. I suppose, got you to to write that uh, that new book. And it is called Curious Habits. And I definitely know that I've got some curious ones. Just ask my fiance or my kids. I'm sure, Boo, you have some curious ones as well. But Luke, mate, welcome back to the show. Great to have you back again. And where did the thought process and I guess the, the inspiration come from for this book? Yeah, well, well thank, thanks for having me. It's nice to know I'm the first one, first return guest. I feel privileged. Kudos to you, my friends. Just keep churning those books out. It's on you, mate. You I mean, you're so hyperproductive. You see that all the rest of the guests are still back in their alts. You're, you're just like firing, mate. Well, thanks for that, Boo. That's, um, I guess that's just a habit, isn't it? It's a really good habit. But I, I guess I'd read quite a lot of books about habits and I could never quite work out why the bloody hell I couldn't sort mine out. <laughs> so I kind of had a look at it and worked out, you know, I, I read things like, you know, Habits of Highly Effective People. I read I read Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg and, and then Atomic Habits, which has been a worldwide, everyone's yeah. bought it. And a lot of the stuff that James Clear talks about was very much he learned from BJ Fogg because BJ Fogg was a, a Stanford professor that's basically they call him the millionaire maker. He's pretty much half of Silicon Valley's gone and done his course on how to influence people and what BJ Fogg teaches people is sort of the the cues and then the actions and then the rewards that you get. And I knew all the structures of it, but I couldn't quite change my habits. I couldn't leave chocolate in the fridge. And I was lots of things I was doing and they were just annoying me that and it's still the theoretical part. It was like, let's teach you the theoretical bit. Cause I've, I've, I've read all of those or listened to all of the, all the ones that I can and that. And it's still very theoretical. It's like, how do you translate that into? action that's kind of what i wanted to do and and so most of those books are pretty much how habits form and then what to do what i kind of went is i want to go that little bit deeper and find out why we're doing them in the first place because unless you can actually work out why you're doing the first place it's really hard to change your environment and get the cues that you need to be able to do things differently and that was kind of my idea. If it was all just about knowledge you know, we'd all have six packs driving around in super yachts and tony robbins would be asking us for advice yeah, I mean, but it's 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 not the way it is. Knowing how to do it is only that little part of the puzzle. It's actually how do I set myself up so that I do it. The the thing about curious habits is that they don't all start bad. 
right? You look at something like, you know, attention to detail is a wonderful thing. You know, having attention to detail, you get stuff done. When it turns into perfectionism, it turns into a curious habit. You know what I mean? Chocolate's awesome. I love chocolate. It's like one of the best things ever, all right? But using chocolate as, as anxiety medication is a curious habit. Are you saying that a curious habit is like something that you do unconsciously and you don't really unpack it that much? It's probably obvious to everyone else, but it's not really obvious to you. And and it comes into that self-awareness space a, a bit, I guess, also. I'm aware of my curious habits when I'm aware of them, and then when I'm busy, I'm not. What, what would a curious habit or something that you do that at one stage was helpful but it isn't helpful anymore? Having standards that no one can achieve and having expectations that are that are very much what a lot of people perceive they can't achieve. I know they can, but in right. their mind they can't. So you come across as somebody who's like never happy or, you know, just can't let things be. And it's like, no, 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 but you can be more. You can. I know you can. So that's that's one. I and that's just something that's been in me from day day one. So Sounds like one of mine. <laughs> but then you come into a self-analysis cycle on that and you're like, I don't know whether I want to change that because I think you should be holding people to – account but at the same time maybe there's a time to turn it on and maybe there's a time to turn it off well that, that's exactly right there's a term they use in psychology called reward invariant and it's where something becomes a habit to become a habit it actually has to have a reward associated in some way or another so for you to want to do it like no one has to break the habit of eating dog shit sandwiches you know i mean it's it, they feel it would taste terrible it'd be awful why would you want to do that it's not a habit you're ever going to have to break so every habit has something that gives you a good feeling of it you know i do this thing that was really really hard and i did it perfectly that feels great let's do that again until it turns into perfectionism and you have to do it absolutely perfect or you don't put anything out there in the world and that's where, that's where the habits turn is that they go from being something that's really quite good at the start. And all of a sudden you keep doing the habit, whether it has the reward or not. And so you've got to have a look and see what it is that you're getting out of it. I used to be a very large human. I was like, you know, nearly 120 kilos. And one of the things I used to do, I was one of the original directors in, in Specsavers. So I've tested eyes. I tested eyes for 20 odd years. I was an optometrist. And one of the things. I'd ask the same question nine and a half million times. So I'd ask which one's clearer, this one or that one, nine and a half million times. And that gets pretty boring. And by about two o'clock in the afternoon every day, I'd be starting to get agitated and I'd sort of feel twitchy and just be pissed off. But like you, I had that work ethic. You've got to go hard. You've got to work as hard as anyone. You don't have breaks. Breaks are for, for wimps and all of that sort of stuff. But by two o'clock, I felt shit out. So what I'd do is I'd go to Coles, eat chocolate chip cookies and drink Pepsi Max. So that was my habit and wondered why my pants didn't fit anymore, all right? And what I was wanting was to not feel agitated anymore. What I wanted to do was feel calm and feel present with my next patient. And I wasn't feeling that after about 2 o'clock. And I was trying to fix it with Pepsi Max and chocolate chip cookies. And that's just a terrible thing to try and fix anxiety with, sugar and caffeine. And so what I worked out was, well, what if I used that, that feeling of feeling anxious at 2 o'clock and what do I want to feel? And what I wanted to feel was calm and relaxed. So how else can I get to calm and relaxed? So my default loop was, was sugar and caffeine, and that wasn't helping. So what else can I do that will actually get me the calmness that I was after? And so what I ended up doing was lying on the floor in my consulting room and diaphragm breathing and getting my parasympathetic nervous system working and calming the farm. And then I'd stand up, say, wow, I feel great from that. That's awesome. Next patient, let's go. So that one habit I was doing, I wasn't actually getting the reward from the chocolate chip cookies and the caffeine, but what I wanted was the calmness. And so what we've got to do is work out what is the end result that we want and what are some alternative ways. And that's where the curiosity comes in. What are some alternative ways to get that thing that we want? Some of that resonates with me. I, at my largest, was probably 20 kilos heavier than I am now. I had a very unhealthy relationship with food. That was one of my curious habits was literally having to have food with me wherever I went. I had this 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 curious habit of like literally having sandwiches or nuts, something in my bag. If I went somewhere without it, it created a massive level of anxiety. What I realized over time was that it it was me trying to fill a void, trying to fill a hole inside. And I was doing it through food, you know, soft drinks. There was this this 
continuous habit. And as you said, it's like, what else could I do to feel that? And what I started to do was right gradually, because I knew that I went to a, a, a nutritionist and, and, and sat there for an hour and she might have just said, blah, 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 drink water and eat lettuce. I think that's basically what I took away from that hour because my brain was not ready to hear, you've got to go from this side to this side right now, right? And I went, okay, well, how do I start to change this habit? And what I did was I just started to reduce gradually. So I was, I was having some days up to five cans of soft drink. It's just horrendous. That's a lot of sugar. That was a freaking lot of sugar. That's what, no wonder I kept doing this with my energy. Then I went, I went, right, what if I just have one a day? And so, so I dropped back to one a day. Then I dropped back to like one twice a week. And I haven't had soft drink for years now, probably eight years now. But it was a gradual habit change because I knew myself well enough to know that if I tried to do it too fast, I'm just going to spring back to where I was in the first place. It was like a, oh, you need to change everything. That wasn't going to work for me. How do people potentially speed up that process in, in what you've kind of researched and what you've put in the book? How do you find people can actually not take, it took me five years to effectively get out the other side of that from once I made that decision? Yeah, well, that, that's a long time. To, and to be wrestling with that, like I want to have another can of soft drink, but I'm not going to because I'm only going to have one. And I almost feel like that's the way a lot of us attack habit change. It's almost a bit like Sisyphus. We're pushing a rock up a hill. And almost always the moment you then stop putting all of that effort in, the rock just rolls back down and you're back to where you started. So what we've got to try and do is work out a way that we can just walk over the hill without the rock, all right? And so what we've got to try and do is work out your habit loop was to have the soft drink or the nuts or the sandwich or whatever it was that you had to have all the time. What is the other thing that I could do that would actually make me feel good? And let's do that. And then attach a positive emotion of that. One of the things BJ Fogg talks about is he calls it sunshine. That whenever you do the thing that's the habit that's, that's got the desirable result, you've got to attach a positive emotion to it. So you've got to say, that felt great. Well, that goes back to that reward, doesn't it? It goes back to that reward that you said that a habit is formed because there's some sort of reward attached. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got to take notice of the reward. That's a really important thing. And unfortunately, we're all negatively biased and all of that sort of stuff that we don't actually take notice of those small positive things very much unless we actually deliberately do it. I had the same problem. I drank Pepsi Max like it was going out of fashion. I'd, I'd drink two or three of those 650 mil things. And that's just horrendous on your stomach and all that fake sugar and chemicals. And it's horrendous. And I swapped it for a, um, these sachets of green tea that body science make. I do, I work with body science a bit. And so I'd have it in a big 800 mil thing of water with the green tea in it. It's got antioxidants in it. It's really good for you, really good for your digestive system. And I would swap it for that. And it had a little bit of caffeine. So I wasn't missing out on the caffeine side of things. But I actually really liked the green tea and it turned into something I really liked. So then giving up soft drink, I wasn't pushing a rock up a hill anymore. All right. And that's, I think, the missing link that when we're having to do all of these changes in habits, but by willpower. And unfortunately, willpower gives up. When shit's not going your way, willpower doesn't work anymore. Yeah, you go, forget it. Back to the old habit. And the rock comes rolling down. Rock comes rolling down and we have to start again. And then we start beating ourselves up. I'm useless on that. And then we get this self-fulfilling prophecy is I can't do this because I've tried a few times and I've failed. But if we do it from a place of I'm okay how I am, but I really want to achieve this and do this a little bit differently, then we can change. And we're changing from a place of acceptance. We're changing from a place of gratitude for all the things that I've learned before but this is where I want to go now. And I'm going there because I want to go there, not because I'm too fat, too this, too whatever. It's I'm doing it because it's what I want to do and it's the result that I want to get. Is there not some yin and yang when it comes to habits? Is there not a bit of a dark side that we need to embrace as well? I don't believe any human can have all the best habits planet, right? And, and then you're going to, you're going to become some sort of, you know, guru habit ninja where everything you do is, is just by the book. So somewhere in there, there's going to be some ebb and flow. So when we talk about curious habits, there is there sort of habits that are like, hey, you know, these aren't the end of the world habits. These are destructive habits. Like what is it that got you motivated by and what impact were you seeing on people's lives by not having awareness around their curious habits? Uh, probably the biggest one I was noticing was just anxiety. My second book we wrote, after a friend of my daughter's took her own life with suicide. It was awful. And Zara, who passed away, her best friend, Ali, really, really struggled after her best friend died. And she was in a, in a really dark place. 
And she was just riddled with anxiety and so many teenagers are. They were like, you know, 16 at the time. And about a year later I caught up with Ellie and sort of said, how you been and having a chat and she said look i've been really terrible i've really been really sad and really depressed and really anxious all the time and so i wanted to have a look at where the habit of anxiety started from to try and help ali so her and i wrote a book called reset together which is all about teenagers and how to get them to talk to themselves nicely and then when I, what i worked out from that is things like anxiety is basically a habit loop that doesn't serve you yeah, you know, we, we every habit loop has has a trigger, an action, and a reward. All right, and we've sort of all every book you read about habits have been talking about that since the beginning of time. But one of the things we do is we use words like triggers for anxiety. You know, something happens that triggers my anxiety, and there's two key really weird things I hate in that sentence. One is the word trigger because when you you know, you, you firing missiles and stuff out of airplanes, boo. When you pull that trigger, you don't have any control over where that bullet goes then. All right. So once, once you pull a trigger, it's gone. You don't have any control over it. So I think one of the things we've got to do is work out what the triggers for anxiety are and then turn them into cues to get curious. And I think when we do that, why am I, why am I worried about this? What things in my past have caused me to be so concerned about this? And to be able to answer them and then take our brain to a place where it's actually going to be helpful to us. That was probably the biggest thing that got me thinking about. And that I think anxiety is a really curious habit. It just turns into something that we do by default. And so what I've tried to do both with reset and with curious habits is to turn triggers for anxiety into cues to get curious. And once we get curious, we can then start to have options. Yeah. That's a great frame there too. Cause I know that when I, had some you know, 17 years of mental health challenges, depression and things like that, that one of the biggest things I learned about it was that it it's a spiral that you can get yourself habitually caught in. And it's a conditioning, it's a pattern. So a thought starts another thought and it's almost like a snowball effect. You have no, It starts to roll down the hill and you got to wait for it to hit the bottom, right? And then it stops. But it's, it is habitually the same thoughts again and again and again and again. And I think – that's where, from a mental health perspective, whether it's anxiety or depression or, or anything else like that, I honestly feel that there is such a habitual component to it. I only learned that probably eight or nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago, about that, the habitual part of thinking. And it comes, still comes up now. Like there's these patterns that I see myself go, hang on, why am I going down this rabbit hole again? Because it starts to spiral down. But likewise, the habit, yeah, and it's not nice. And it's not nice for people around me. But it's like the same habit can go the other way. It can turn you around the other way. But it's about reprogramming that habit. And the other thing too for me is that concept of, as you said, when you're struggling with that rock, it's like you're you're trying to use willpower to run away from something. But when you start to create a positive reward, you actually start to move towards something. And that's a much more positive frame to put on it. Well, with the, with the mental health stuff you're talking about before, one of the tools we came up with, and we talk about it in both books, was was catch, wait, and reset. And it's just a really simple three-step plan. And the first one is catch, and catch the physical feelings that you're feeling stressed. Like what would yours be, Boo? What would the physical feeling that you're feeling under the pump and you're, you're getting anxious, what might it be? I don't get anxious. I've never in, in my life had anxiety or I've never had a looping thought or I understand that side of anxiety never have i ever had an issue with motivation in my entire life ever it's just been a given so i'd I'd push back on you you say that i've never felt anxiety and stuff i I don't believe you for a second the fact that you you don't have it as something that's really booking a room in your head doesn't mean you don't have anxiety if you didn't have anxiety you wouldn't have you wouldn't have been a very good fighter pilot you wouldn't have done a lot of the things you do all right so you're gonna feel anxious at times we all do you, you've reframed it in anxiety. a different way, so you don't feel it that way. Yeah, my understanding of anxiety is it's a it's a looping thing. It's out of your control. You get stressed and agitated by it. Uh, oh, you, there's you there's two ways you can look at it. You can look at it as a state or a trait. And one of the problems is when it's a state, it's I am feeling anxious at the moment. You know, there's an enemy mig on your tail. <laughs> um, you're going to feel anxious in that situation. That's fight or flight. It's what it's there for. You're meant to have it. It's, we're designed for that. But then it. When anxiety turns into something like a trait, it becomes part of who you are. So attached to your identity, does it? Yeah, it's attached to your identity. All right. And I think particularly young people at the moment are really quick to go from state to trait. Oh, that, that triggers my anxiety. 
or I have anxiety versus I feel anxious. But do you think that's because it's just so we've just got hyper awareness of it now, and it's just that everyone just seems to be self-diagnosing mental health, right? Uh, yes, there's triggers for it. Yes, there's the, you know the whole iGen, the loss of social, uh, sorry, of community breakdown, social connections. But what role does does hyper awareness of or there's no such thing as hyper awareness of mental illness? The more aware, the better. Because it seems to be quite a phenomenon late, like as of the last five years or so. But my daughter's, you know, dealing with a lot of kids. I don't know a parent of a preteen, early teen at the moment who's aren't having some massive crisis with this. Mate, I, I do workshops all the time and speak from stage. And the bit when I notice almost every person, because most of the people in the room are parents, when you start talking about teenagers and anxiety, almost all of them, their ears lit up and go, oh, can you help me with this? Please tell me, tell me, tell me. And you get flooded at the end of people wanting to come up to talk to you to sort of, you know, how can I deal with my daughter's anxiety or my son's anxiety? And they haven't got the tools in terms of they're not actually letting themselves relax and they're not actually they're not actually recharging properly. Adam Fraser, who we spoke with, you and I both spoke with at a conference recently, Boo, did some research on this, trying to work out whether we're more resilient or less resilient than we used to be. And what would your take on that be, Sean? I'd probably say less. I'd say less. My gut feeling was less as well, but Adam Fraser did the, did the research on it and it turns out we're just as resilient as we always was. What he decided from his research is that we don't have a resilience problem, we have a recovery problem. So the hassle is we never actually get to that that sort of side of the, the curve where we're actually chilled out, we're relaxed and we're switching off. We're going from being full-on running manic to being burnt out and then bouncing back. We're not going all the way to the other side. And I think that's part of the problem, that we're not putting our devices away. We're not actually letting ourselves be bored and recharge and things like that. And I think that's why things like meditation and stuff are, are gaining a bit of traction because it's it's your way of your brain to actually let myself wash some stuff through, let it be clear, rather than go, 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 and feeling like you were at the end of last week, Boo, where your bucket was full. I think one of the problems, particularly with the younger generation, and I, I think it's true for, for the older guys too, is that we're not actually recovering on purpose. We're not recovering deliberately. What does recovering deliberately actually look like there? Well, the hassle is that almost everything in our world is stimulating our sympathetic nervous system. It's all pushing the accelerator. Go here, you've got to have this, you've got to watch this ad and you've got to see this on Facebook and that person's doing this. And we get this whole compare and despair, which kind of winds people up. What if we just took a few moments and actually breathed into our stomachs and actually got ourselves to calm down for a little bit and actually push the brake for a while? We don't have to go quite so fast. Let's do those times when we do have half an hour to spare instead of scrolling on facebook or instagram why don't we just sit down and walk through nature or why don't we just go and use our there's two things you can do to actually press the brakes one is breathing into your diaphragm you've got 610 muscles in your body one of them links straight to the hypothalamus which is like the ea of your brain it actually tells you whether to speed up or slow down so it controls your heart rate it controls your breathing it controls your blood pressure and your diaphragm links straight to that the other thing, and from an optometrist's point of view, this makes a lot of sense to me as well. The other one is your eyes. The more you use your central vision, the more it stimulates your sympathetic nervous system. So I'm nerding out a little bit now. But um, what happens then is if we're constantly looking with at our phones and constantly looking at screens and we're constantly getting all of this compare and despair coming at us and we're constantly bombarded with everything, when do we push the brakes? When do we actually put it all and let ourselves relax and use our peripheral vision? You talk, you've heard this, you know, walking in nature is such a good thing to help recharge. The reason is that when you're walking in nature, there's things out in the periphery of your vision all the time and that stimulates your actual calm and disarm part of your body. And we're not doing things like that anywhere near enough. It's very hard to get that across and to get a level of understanding. You know, I, I know as a parent with the kids, you're like it's almost like a mantra, get off your phone. Get off your phone, put it in that go outside, come for a walk, let's do this, do something physical, get off your phone. And they understand it and they comprehend it and you talk in depth about what it's doing to their nervous system and their brains, but their entire world is, is in there, their chat, their snap. And it's for them, it's like, well, hang on a minute, that 
what you're saying is I can't talk to my friends. Is that, you know, and it's like, no, but you don't need, no one needs to talk to their friends that much. Are there tactics or techniques you can use? Yeah, there's some really good ones. FOMO is real. That fear of missing out is absolutely real. And it's actually going to cause anxiety, particularly for kids. One of the things we did, particularly in exams and some of the schools I work with, coming up to exam times, you get the kids to get three or four of them together and all of them come offline together. All right. So if, if your three best mates are offline and you're offline too, that's a little bit easier. Doesn't feel quite so bad. The other thing is almost everything about habits is you've got to change your environment somehow. So if you're constantly grabbing your phone and your phone's right there, you're going to grab it more. If your phone's in the other room, you're not going to grab it. I'm in my studio now and I come in through the garage and come in through the studio and go into the rest of the house. My phone doesn't enter my house. I plug it in and it recharges in the studio and I'll go back and check it maybe once or twice before I go to bed and I leave the ringer on so it will ring. If, if someone needs to get hold of me, they'll ring and I'll hear it and I'll come and come and answer it or call them back. But I'm not sitting there. 85% of people watch two screens at a time. If they're watching a movie on TV, they'll also be looking at Instagram. All right? That's just overload and it's constantly getting these this sort of comparison of everyone else's life, which is sailing on super yachts and doing amazing things on these beautiful beaches. And, you know, no one, no one puts themselves washing, you know, hanging the washing on the line or raking up leaves. They only show the good stuff. So we're constantly comparing everyone else's highlight reel to our mundane everything and we come unstuck. So you started saying before, Luke, about three, there was catch was the first one. There was two other things you were going to cover. Yeah. The second, the second one's weight. And weight. weight stands for what am I thinking? So catch the physical signs. And to me, it's knots under my stomach. About 60% of people, it's knots in your stomach. What would yours be, Sean? Yeah, mine's tightening in my chest and a, a bit of a stomach, but I can feel it. I can feel like a closing in in my, in my stomach, in my chest. Some people, their, their jaws will clench. Uh, the tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth is another one, dry mouth. And all of these are basically just stress responses. They're basically your body saying, look, we don't need to worry about digesting food. We've got to run a fight here, all right? And because that, that's the response, then cortisol and adrenaline, what they do is they, they deprioritize the things you don't need. So that feeling of the, the chest in your chest, that is then your cue to say, well, what am I thinking? What am I thinking? What's making me think that? And is it helping? And there's something about those three questions. Get your sort of limbic old brain and your smart new brain back together. And once we do that, then we can do the reset, which is the same as on your computer. You know, if your computer's overloaded, the little circle will go around. The reset is control-alt-delete. What can I control? What should I change? And what should I get rid of? And so if we can go catch, wait, and reset, we've got a three-step program to actually link our our smart brain and our emotional brain together and actually choose the thing that's going to help us. One thing that I realized uh, over the years as well is the fact that I've had a tendency to control my own or endeavor to control my own environment, control anxiety, all that mental health stuff that I have overcame about 10 years ago is that I kept myself incredibly busy and incredibly distracted all the time. So I don't actually have the space. So, and you're talking about obviously the, you know, get out in the environment for half an hour and, and switch off, disconnect. How important is your ability to actually move through and change these habits by having actual space versus if you just continually distract yourself on your phones and other things, then what chance do we have of changing those habits or replacing those habits with more positive ones if we are constantly on, on, on all the time? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And one of the things is that that's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, every habit loop that we don't want, we have to change with something that we do, all right? And you've done that and you've done that by being busy and being productive and stuff, which is really good until it's not, you know what I mean? So what we've got to do is you, we've got to learn how to get comfortable with the discomfort of feeling agitated when we're doing nothing to actually to learn how to get bored again. And this sounds really, really weird, but we've almost got to learn how to get bored again. We've turned boredom into this horrific thing that we've got to avoid at all costs. And boredom is actually not such a bad thing. I love putting the washing on the line. It's almost like my magic place to go and think about stuff. Yeah, it's cathartic. I do that with washing dishes or something because it stops me. I'm still moving, so I've got some energy moving, but it actually stops me from thinking too much or no one can ring me. And, and that's one of the things that I've done you know, many years ago is on my phone, 
I don't have any notifications that make noise. That's on silent all the time. The only notifications I have is a little circle with the red circle with a number, a white number in it. And that's for phone, text messages, and my team, direct communication with my team. That's it. If I want something, I go to it. I don't let it come to me. And that's one of the biggest shifts in reducing my own anxiety is that I can control that. You're the one in 10 with that, Sean, that, that actually have done that. Is it even one in 10? I don't know too many other people that have actually done that. You know, it's probably one in 50 maybe. I, I don't know. I just There's so much distraction. There's so many dingings and buzzes and this thing and that thing and it's just, it just doesn't stop, you know. I, I actually think every now and then we need a hard reset as well. I, I call what you did, you did changing your notifications, I call that a noise-cancelling habit. A noise cancelling habit is something you can do once and it gets rid of a whole bunch of noise. You know, like the noise cancelling headphones on, yep. I can't hear anything else going on here and they're really great when you're in the plane and all of that sort of stuff. Have a thing, if you're listening to this now, have a think of what could be a noise cancelling habit. What's something that's going to take away a bunch of distractions? It only takes me five seconds to do and it will take them away forever. And plugging your phone in another room is far and away the easiest. You mean, and be comfortable with the fact that you haven't got it next to you for a little while. Well, the other thing to do is every now and then just turn it on flight mode because it stops. now. And you talked about the anxiety of doing nothing. And I was involved for many years in, in the Montessori environment on board of a school and stuff like that. And the frame was boredom's never going to kill you, right? And it's where creativity lives. So if you want to be creative, you need to get bored first. You need to stop. You need to remove the distractions. And I think, Boo, you said this morning on a meeting with my team that it takes about 30 minutes to go from operational strategic thinking into creativity. So you need to actually have a transition between the different states of mind to move towards that creative state. And it needs space. It doesn't just come. Van Gogh didn't paint some pictures like when he was busy on his Facebook and then suddenly turned here and painted this ridiculously amazing picture. You know, or people that write poems or books or whatever, you can't be coming straight off your phone and write a chapter of your book. You know, you, you just can't. Social media got so much. It's got so much to answer, doesn't it? Like the more you look at that beast, the more you just start to realise it's the cons are starting to outweigh the pros. Really, it's you have to proactively now train to get off that. Yeah, it, it really has. They've out, outweighed them by a long way, but we have control over that. But we have to set up our environment. We have to set up our environment differently. We want to be able to look at all of that stuff all, all the time and not feel anxious and not have all these other problems. And it's just not going to happen. It's like it's like saying I live at the North Pole and I want to grow a cactus. You know what I mean? You can't just grow a cactus in the North Pole. It won't take. So we've got to change our environment. If we want to grow a cactus, we've got to move to the desert. We've got to create an environment that actually the cactus will grow in. And the hassle is that we're trying to create an environment where people are, are happy and motivated and doing really good things for each other and we're doing it in an environment that's just not set up for that. And so we have to change your environment to be able to. And that sounds like what you did, Sean, when you changed a lot of your habits. What I went from was from the victim to being in control. So I went from the victim of it. So it was happening and the phone says, jump, jump. Phone says, jump again, jump. You know, like... And I went, hang on, hang on, who's the boss here? Who's in charge? And the thing is, no matter with all this stuff going, oh, people are you know stuck and it's addictive and all this stuff, yeah, great. But we have a choice. As you just said, Luke, we still have a choice. You have a choice to turn your bloody notifications off. You have a choice to never have your ringer on. The only time I ever have it on is if I'm out somewhere without my kids and I want to make sure that if they ring, I hear it. It's the only time a ring is ever on and it's very rare. It, it's a almost like this self gratification thing, but it it's a double edged sword. Yeah, I get all this attention, but then it's taking away all this other potential creativity and space. And when you don't have your phone next to you all the time, you do get used to it really quite quickly. I try and do a hard reset every year, and where you go away for four or five days with no technology. Um, last year, I did it and I fasted for five days, lived in a teepee by myself, so I had no food, no people, and no technology for five days, and that's. That's life-changing. It completely changes the way. You know, I read things like the Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching and read these really old, really cool texts. And just two weeks ago, we went walking out, out in the back of Port Macquarie for four days. We went out and walked out to these cabins with, with four mates, no technology, just carried our own food, ate really simply and just talked with three of my mates for 
for four days. And you come back after those sorts of things and you just feel lighter and everything just feels like it functions and your, your brain, your bucket's not full anymore. The hassle is our buckets are almost always full and it doesn't take much to, to get us to the top. And when they're full, we tap out. And one of the ways we tap out is by not giving a shit anymore. And so it then turns into apathy and apathy then turns into depression and apathy then turns into, oh, I don't give a shit about anything. All right. And, you know, you would have done those, those quotes you had to do, boo, about taking people flying and stuff. You would have done them, but your bucket was full. And that's why you didn't give a shit about it. We've got to deliberately empty <laughs> our bucket. Yeah. That's the issue is, is I think you get to a point where you know it as well. Doesn't matter how much you know or how much you manage it. To, like everyone is prone to this stuff. There is no perfect world. You can't know too much, can't know everything. And obviously coming more from the deep performing, high performing perspective, which is like me, it's how do we have some high performing habits, not too much because, as you know, mate, I think high performance is a bad thing. I think it actually has a detrimental effect in the long term. So what are some of the downsides of good habits for high performing people? You know, I go to the gym every day. I eat good food. I, I do everything good. but you're a pain in the ass to be around. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, that's kind of the definition of curious habits, that they're, they're useful till they're not. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go into the gym every day and being a pain in the ass aren't things that have to go together. <laughs> um, but I think one of, one of the things I talk about, I, I interviewed a, a really good psychotherapist from Pittsburgh in the States. His dad was a Harvard professor. He's a really interesting guy, a guy called Josh Dodes. And he coined a phrase called the unhappy achiever. And I really liked the concept of the unhappy achiever because basically what it is is these people aren't achieving because they so much like achieving. They don't hit the top of the mountain. They don't get the sales they want. They don't do any of them and celebrate it. They then have to go on to whatever's next. And so what a lot of these high-achieving people can do is they attach their self-worth onto whether they're achieving or not. The moment they stop achieving, their self-worth goes down the toilet. And, and Josh calls, called these guys unhappy achievers. I call them business owners. That's what I call them. Uh, entrepreneurs, right? Because it's like, all right, I've done that. What's next? Done that. What's next? Done that. What's it? And I'm talking about myself here too, right? It's like, okay, I've ticked that off. We've, we've hit that milestone. What's the next one? Yeah, but is it self-worth? I don't know whether it's self. I'm not sure it's self-worth though. I think there's an element of identity, mate. This is, this is who I am. This is, what I, this is what I do. I think there's an element of that to it. I'm that person who just likes to achieve and the next thing and the next thing. But you, but know, you also savour it, Boo. You also stop and say, well, you know, you, you sent me a text the other day of something you did and that you showed how much you'd moved the needle with one of the companies you work with. And you were stoked with that and you really, really savoured that. And so that's a little bit different. That's not what unhappy achievers do. Unhappy achievers turn mm-hmm. it into I have to actually achieve this or I'm going to feel like shit. Yeah. Or, I, or I am a failure. I am a failure rather than I have failed at that thing. It becomes an identity thing. And, yep, that was tie- I was tied up with that deep, deep into that. A lot of perfectionists are. And what some perfectionists will do, will do everything they can to make sure everything's perfect. Other ones just won't put anything out in the world. Well, I'm a recovering perfectionist, not quite reformed yet, but I'm never know. <laughs> well, that, that's probably the classic the classic curious habit that attention to detail is great, but a perfectionist is not a habit you really want. Mm. But I think to be actually understand why we're doing the things we do is probably the key to a lot of it. And that, that doing habit change because you want to and not because you have to. I think that's, that's the, the secret source of curious habits. I think to be able to work out what you want to get out of it. And I'm going to do that because that's the, the human I want to be. I have a, an alter ego, my alter ego, and I, I talk about this in the book and how we all need to have a really clear idea of what the best version of us is, what the best version of Sean is and what the best version of Boo is. And one thing they've discovered is if you talk to yourself in the third person, you actually give yourself better advice. Ethan Cross did some great research at University of Michigan about this. And if you, if you talk to yourself in the third person, if you talk to other people in the third person, you sound like a dickhead, <laughs> but Luke hates that. But talking to yourself in the third person is actually a really good way to connect your old brain and your new brain again. And so you actually give yourself better advice. Uh, I had a thing on uh, Thursday with a bunch of, uh, I talk about the fighter pilot call sign and the real reason we have call signs is the ultigo. 
that's the person at work. That's the person who has to perform a certain way. That's the person that we I can look at completely if it was my best friend, not me. But I've not I've not taken it where you take it there, which is general self awareness. It's more about in a pressure cooker environment when you're under pressure and you have to deliver. Don't make it personal. Just look at your behaviour and traits and how you interact with everyone independently. So it's great. I think you're right. And they had to have exactly the same conversation. You don't walk around talking in, about yourself and your alter ego. The call sign's better than, you know, hey, Luke, hey, hey, Sean. Like, yeah, a, a call sign's <laughs> It's a bit weird, but it's a, it's a bit softer. And I, and I think that's so important. I think a third person, whilst it's freaking weird, to most people, and, and you think it's weird when you observe that behaviour, but doing it on the quads, very powerful. Yeah. Well, they actually put people in fMRI machines. They did this, this work at University of Michigan, and they put people in fMRI machines, and they got them to tell a story that was a really emotional, really tough story. And they, they, they swapped it around, so they did, did first and second different ways, and they got them to tell the story and they used first-person pronouns, I, me, all of that, told the story. And then they told the story again using third-person pronouns, like Luke did this, Luke did that. And what they discovered was the prefrontal cortex lit up more when they're telling in the third person and all your amygdala and all of your fight-or-flight stuff in your limbic brain actually quietened down. And so by using the third-person using third person self-talk actually gets you more deliberate and less reactive and less stressed. So it actually is a physical thing and changes which parts of your brain actually light up. So one of the things I do in our workshops and in, in some of the stuff that we do with companies now is we work out what the characteristics of the better version of you you are. So the, there's a process that we go through and my alter ego's name is Carlos and he is curious, creative and generous. All right, so if I'm being curious, creative, and generous, I'm as happy as a pig in shit. I'm loving life. And I get to coach and talk from stage and run workshops and stuff, so I get to be curious, creative, and generous all day. And one of the things it does, like say I'm having an argument with my wife, am I being curious about her point of view? Am I being creative about finding a solution we both like? Am I being generous with my time and my energy? And invariably I'm not. The best version of her and the best version of me get on like a house on fire. It's only when one of us doesn't turn up as the best versions that we don't get on. So the moment I do that, I connect those parts of my brain again and I actually come up with a better way to actually deal with whatever we're doing in our marriage. Even things like I, I live just up the road from the beach and walking to the beach in the morning, you know, Luke might step over a bit of rubbish, Carlos would pick it up and put it in the bin. You know what I mean? It's sort of, it gives you that frame of reference of what the best version of you would do every time. And I think that's a really good habit to get into to make sure your self-talk's actually on your side. What's an example of some language, Luke? What could people listening to this actually, how would they language it? People that don't quite understand third person, first person. Maybe ask Carlos. Yeah, I, I literally would do that. I'll ask myself, what would Carlos do? And I, I did it this morning. I ride an exercise bike every morning for an hour. That's where I do all of my reading and my sort of learning other people's stuff is, is on the exercise bike. And it's middle of winter now. We're in Queensland, so we're soft. But outside, it, it, it was cold. It's like eight degrees and the pool's really cold, all right? But I do a cold plunge every morning. And I got a phone call just after I got off the bike and I kind of cooled down a little bit and I didn't want to do the cold plunge. I walked to the top of the stairs, was just about to get in the shower and then went, no, Carlos would go and do the cold plunge. Walked back downstairs, dives in the pool, froze my tits off, um, stayed, stayed in there for a couple of minutes and then come out. So that was just this morning. It was like, no, Carlos would, would go and do the cold plunge because he knows that's really good for your metabolism. He knows that's really good for your stress system and you know that even though it doesn't feel pleasant, it's really, really good for you. And I've attached a positive emotion to doing the cold plunge in the morning. Mm. And that's a, a perfect example. And that would happen to me three or four times a day. And again, it this has to become a habit. My habit is connecting with connecting with Carlos. I want to connect with the better version of me. Because that gets you, draws you closer to that version of you then. Yeah. It makes, yeah. You, makes you show up more and more as that because you're creating a habit around it now and not allowing yourself to – fall short on those those actions that you're those new habits that you're endeavoring yeah, to form. Yeah, what I also do is every superhero also has a nemesis. Batman has the Joker, Superman has Lex Luthor. Every superhero's got a nemesis. And I think we've also got to be really clear on what our nemesis sounds like. 
there's a guy called Little Luke and Little Luke's a pigeon-toed little kid that lived in the dodgy part of Narang that couldn't read until grade nine and was always really crap at sports and had to work way harder than everyone else. And he often tells me I can't do stuff. Now I know whether it's Little Luke on one shoulder or Carlos on the other one and I listen to Carlos. So you can actually understand the negative self-talk that you use yourself and when you give that one a name, it's just as powerful. I don't want to listen to him. I can hear it, but he doesn't get a say in what I do. One of the authors from Major Street, my publisher, her name's Amy Silver, and she says that, that fear is the, the loudest voice in any party. And there's a party going on in your head and fear is the loudest voice. And her thing is that fear, fear gets heard, but it doesn't get a say in what you do. And I really love that as well. So having an idea of what the best version of me would do, being able to talk to him, being able to talk to Carlos, but then also understand when it's little Luke that's trying to make me to stay small and not do something that's hard and not stick my head up and, and not be brave. I understand it when it's him talking now. Yep. Because you've now identified and placed it in a certain, you know. It's as yeah. clear as the old yeah. Flintstones yeah. thing where the, you know, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the yeah. other. I know which one's talking now. And when I do the workshops in companies and stuff, everyone comes out with their Carlos, with the better version of them and know exactly what the traits are. And they also get really clear on what their nemesis sounds like. And quite often the nemesis might sound like a, a sibling or a parent or a, I had a kid the other day who I was coaching. I, I work with his mum and his nemesis sounded exactly like a bully he had in grade nine. He had a bully in grade nine and he's like, wow, all the shit I'm saying is the sort of stuff he would have said. And the moment he understood that, it actually lost its power. Yeah. And so that negative self-talk actually got sorted out once he realized that, wow, that, that voice sounds a lot like that bully I had in grade nine. So, so it's, it's really powerful stuff once you actually understand what's driving a lot of these habits yeah. and what things you can do to actually make them a little bit different without being Sisyphus and pushing a rock up a hill. And again, it's, it's that thing about self-awareness. If we know ourselves better, we can in, interact with our environment better, we will show up better for ourselves, for others, we'll have a better time in our own heads um, and all the rest of it. So, Socrates knew this two and a half thousand years ago and, and we're still having to keep relearning it. Yeah, We're still not listening. But, uh, but clearly, clearly uh, you and Carlos are both uh, very curious individuals. In the process of writing this book, what's something that you learnt that you would go back and teach Little Luke. A friend of mine, Cam Schwab, uh, he's a great mentor. He's a really smart bloke. He, he does a similar question to that. But the last chapter in the book, I do a thought experiment that actually says, we all get that cliche of you know, what advice would you give the younger version of you? Yeah. All right. We've all heard that a hundred times. His sort of switch on that was, what would you go back and thank 25-year-old Luke for? What things would you thank him for? And I'd thank him for working hard when it was time to work hard. I'd thank him for working on his marriage when, when it looked like it wasn't going to be good. You'd thank 25-year-old you for, for sorting his mental health out between there and now. The second part of that was to, okay, let's go to 70-year-old you. What would 70-year-old you come back and thank you for right now? And that's what you need to do. I, you like I mean, it, it was like 75-year-old would thank me for, for going out and sharing this message about curious habits and stress Teflon and teaching kids how to reset and learning how to putt and staying off the carbs and embracing the difficulty of things like fasting. To be able to do all of those things and 75-year-old may be pretty helpful, if grateful if I could do all of those and, and Carlos will do all of those. I really like that reframe, you know, the, the, the thank you frame. Obviously, there's a what would you teach someone to try and teach people that are not quite as far on the journey and new things. But when it comes to ourselves, yeah, I really like that frame of going back, thanking that version of yourself at that age or at whatever age it is. You know, maybe you were going through a challenge, being bullied at school. What would you think yourself was showing up as? And again, you know, we use it in our definition of leadership process about getting people to actually look in the future. Who, what do you want to be known for as well? But this one's bringing it to a more personal level so i really really like that yeah it's a really it's a really great way to to end the book when you write a book like this you have a lot of um drafts so you end up reading and writing it a lot of times and every time i read it i just go wow i really i really love cam's cam's reframe on that i really thank him for beating imposter syndrome i, I really thank them for 
getting rid of chocolate chip cookies and Pepsi Max. You know what I mean? They weren't serving me. It was a habit that I was doing just for instant gratification. It wasn't serving me. So what habits are actually going to serve you? And let, let's put a positive emotion on them and start doing them a bit more often. Let's get curious about them. Awesome, mate. Such a deep, as always, and wide-ranging conversation. And I think there's more to it than, than habits with where you're taking that story. And I think really empowering from the book is no matter what it is it it rests with you the control of the solution to whatever it is that you're finding difficult to overcome it it rests with you and i think the book obviously going to give people a really great way to to start the conversations with you with carlos and little luke yeah, thanks, mate. That, well, that, that was my plan to get people to have that self awareness of what am I getting out of these habits that I'm calling bad? You know, if I'm not getting anything out of them, why am I doing them? And you've almost got to have that, that bit of disillusionment to be able to change something. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the disillusionment, there's almost no, there's no catalyst to actually make you want to change. That's the, what we call the, the change threshold is the pain of doing nothing becomes greater than the pain of doing something. Yeah. You got to get, get got to get to that tipping point, otherwise you won't take the action. Yeah, exactly. But then you've also got to set up your environment and stuff so that the action's easier to take. You've got to attach a positive emotion to it so it's easier to do. But none of this stuff, none of this stuff is rocket science. But I think there's a lot of things that, and I love all these books, and I built on a lot of these books about habits. But I don't think we can really truly change unless we start to look at why we're doing them in the first place. And the moment we start to do that, and then what am I trying to get out of it? And then what are my alternatives? And that's where the curiosity comes in. What are my alternatives here? And once you do that, the thing that you do then becomes the thing that you want to do. And that that's not hard. Yeah, that doesn't take a whole lot of pushing uphill anymore. It just happens. And that that's kind of what I want to get people to get out of Curious Habits. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Fantastic. Well, Luke, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Let us know when you write your next book. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll welcome you with open arms again. And we'll put some links in the show notes as well so that people can track you down, they can find your book and books. And uh, once again, really, really appreciate you taking the time to share your curiosity and your wisdom. And I'm sure that this is going to, uh, it's, I've taken away quite a lot. So hopefully uh, our listeners will as well. Pleasure, mate. Always good to talk to you, boys. Thanks, Sean Luke. and Boot, always appreciate a pleasure. You, this has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.